It's Jared. So at Contested, we really like to focus on the underrated issues in the political spectrum and the conversation, ones that are really important but don't make the media cycle as often, things like sports diplomacy, for instance. But this week, we really needed to address the issue that all of us are thinking about right now, and that is George Floyd's atrocious murder and the response that is being held nationwide. I don't think there is much disagreement that the actions that have transpired both in Minneapolis and over time in terms of the relations between the black community and policing is bad and troublesome, to say the least. But what I have noticed both on social media and in talking with various people is that the solution to this issue is very unclear, right? Well, many people on the left and even people on the right are quick to come out and dismiss and not condone any of these actions by police, the way to move forward seems very unclear. Some people take the position that protesting and even violent protesting at sorts is a healthy measure and it's the only way to bring attention to an issue that is long-standing. Others think that's not quite as solvent. It doesn't really do too much to help the cause and probably is only going to cause more destruction and divisiveness. Some are proposing a full defundment of the police. Others saying, no, maybe in-system reforms is the best option. So I think instead of posting on social media, we need to have a dialogue like what we have uncontested here, where you really get to exhaust the conversation and understand where people are coming from, why they believe that and how to move forward. Because simply posting one thing or even saying that you've donated, which donating is great. Donate to causes that you believe in, vote for the people who you believe in, but that doesn't tell the full story. And I think being able to hide behind a post doesn't expose a lot of what people believe and find that a lot of people are actually in good agreement on a bunch of this. Um, and it's really just how to move forward that is the big issue. So for today's episode, I sit down with Nick Catalano, one of my best friends and a big proponent of law enforcement, and Bio Collins, the host of the Politically Incorrect podcast, who explains exactly how the black community is feeling at the moment. And I think this conversation, while it did get quote unquote contested at points, was really productive. And I thank both gentlemen for being very respectful and honest and productive in this conversation. So if you're interested in anything that is going on right now, we cover it all. Stay tuned. Hey, Nick. Hey, Bio. Hey, how you doing? How's it going? Doing well, doing well. So before we kind of hop into today's really timely discussion, if each of you could just provide a little bit of information on who you are and why this issue is really important to you. So Nick, you can go first. Sure. Well, my name is Nick Catalano. I'm uh, currently a senior at uh, Taft High School. What mainly connects me to this issue is my passion for law enforcement. Uh, ever since I was really little, I've always wanted to work in the criminal justice field. And, you know, without getting too personally into my life, I think I've been very lucky to having avoided violence and crime growing up. And I really have always wanted to make a difference for American citizens by protecting the public from criminals and helping the community as much as I can. Right now at this time, I'm an LAPD and a Red Cross volunteer. Next year, I'm going to John Jay College in New York. And after I'm uh, graduate, I'm hoping to going to join the NYPD and eventually get into a uh, federal field. And so while I certainly can't you know, understand this issue from the lens of an African-American person in America, despite my biases towards uh, law enforcement, I really do my best to stay impartial and try to understand how, you know, really unfortunate incidents like the one in Minneapolis occurred and how we can do to be better in the future. Awesome. Bio? 
Hi, I'm a senior at Long Beach Valley High School, also a youth and government alumni. I will be a freshman attending UC Berkeley in the fall. And as this issue is important to me just because being an African-American male or just African-American in general, just realizing that the country isn't much different than it was before civil rights and stuff like that, just to understand that things have just taken on a new form and a new shape, but we're still on the front lines like, you know, MLK and stuff like that. So that's why it's important to uh, have platforms like this to talk about things. So that's me. Thank you. So Bio, if you want to elaborate on what you were just talking about, which is, and kind of Nick had pointed to this too, specifically how since either pre-civil rights and even till now, how exactly just for some context has this issue not really changed, but just evolved over time, specifically for black and brown communities? Right. So the important thing to understand, and I recently learned this, and I don't know if Nick is aware, the birth of the American police was rooted in racism, right? Because police started off as slave patrols and night watches, later known as the modern police department. They're both designed to control minorities. They also use it as a way to keep the white people simply from the Native Americans and stuff like that. Yeah, like I said, so a lot of the slave patrols and the police night watches started off as that and eventually further developed into the police force that we know now. So if we even just go back all the way to the root of where it started, that's how you build the mentality and the fear and the prejudices and the ignorance towards certain groups of people, which leads to the mindsets we have now, because what we have now isn't something that just starts randomly. It's something that's built up over time, over years, over 400 years of twisted mindset. So, you know, and then you also have the slave patrols help to maintain the economic order and to assist wealthy landowners in recovering and punishing slaves who essentially were labeled as property, right? And then, you know, they release the uh, slaves with the Emancipation Proclamation, as you know. America, to me, and most Black people, is it's an illusion of freedom because the Emancipation Proclamation releases the slaves. But then you have millions of people who have been released for contributing free labor for 400 years, and now you need jobs, now you need homes, now you need a place to go. What do we do with all these unwanted people? We can't send them back to where we came from. We got them from somewhere. So what do we do? That's when the prison boom started. It was created to support the economy without the free labor of slavery. So there's all these systems put in place. So you just go from one thing to another to another. Then you have war on drugs and you have the crack endemic in our communities. You have like the three strike rule. And also, as I was learning yesterday, there's just certain things embedded in our country's history, such as the Cornerstone speech. The Cornerstone speech was written by someone in the Confederacy, like on the Southern states. So it's by a man named Stevens and it's a Confederacy speech. And so his quote was, our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea of equality, which is what Abraham Lincoln at the time was trying to push forward. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. You know, with, with things like that being said, with all the facts I laid before you on how like our country has built its, its racism, right? And that's just, all those things and more all contribute to where we are now. Yeah, thank you. And I think for some of the listeners, we did a whole two-part series on some of the racial history in America. So feel free to check that out for some more facts along what Bio is saying. Nick, do you want to respond to that at all? Yeah, sure. 
I absolutely agree that many of our nation's early institutions have been rooted in racism. And that's really the reason that we see a lot of the disproportionate crime statistics come back in the recent years. And the fact that African-American people and minorities in general are a lot more likely to interact with law enforcement. However, I don't believe that contemporary law enforcement represents the same racial biases due to the fact that contemporary law enforcement has already been through so many trials and tribulations and the leadership is consistently changing. Additionally, law enforcement, at least in the modern era, has been under so much ridicule and under so much evaluation that the majority, and while I won't say that you know, every single department is perfect, the majority of departments now represent a uh, more legitimate and a much more trustable organization that is truly designed to protect the people. And again, don't get me wrong, I'm not disputing the fact that early law enforcement was rooted in racism, but to be fair, a lot of American institutions were for that matter. And I don't think that can really be applied to contemporary law enforcement, which this debate is really about and how to move forward. However, as we see you know, later in the, and I shouldn't say debate more, conversation, and later in the conversation, I'm, and I'll certainly uh, agree with you, Bio, that I think a lot of the American institutions that were, you know, built through racism and built to protect the white upper elite are the reasoning that we see so much of the current uh, difficulties between, uh, namely, police and minorities. Yeah. So kind of building off that, I kind of want to hop into like, what is contemporary law enforcement then, right? Because I think as Bio pointed out, and we all are in agreement here, is that early law enforcement was slave patrols. And Nick, you obviously hold the position that it's evolved significantly over time, bio probably less so. So if you can, Nick first and then bio after, if you could detail what does contemporary law enforcement look like on both sides? What should ideal law enforcement interaction be? Like if the system of current law enforcement was to work at its pinnacle, you know, work perfectly, what would that look like? So I'll go to Nick, you first and then bio. Thank you. So firstly, I think that the challenge of any law enforcement or any protector anywhere in certain systems has to balance two difficult things. And that is firstly the rights and the privacy of the people it's protecting and then the safety of the public. It actually kind of ties back to this privacy versus security debate that we see in a lot of American politics. A ideal police force would balance this perfectly one that respects the rights of its citizens to throughout every article of the constitution to freely move and assemble and to accept criticism from citizens where it's done wrong, but to also hold the safety of the public in a certain hand. Again, the ultimate goal of contemporary police is to protect the people. It is people who have taken it upon themselves to protect the rights and the freedoms and the safety of American citizens. And for that reason, there has to be a balance between, yes, you know, upholding the rights of American citizens, whether or not they have committed crime, but also protecting the public at large from dangerous criminals and threats to the safety of society. Thank you. Bio? I think for me, it's the police are not judge, jury, and executioner. Uh, my pain is not their job to necessarily go fall through that chain of command because in America, there's a chain of command. The police's job is to protect and serve, and then it should go up the chain of command and criminal justice. People shouldn't be dying by the hands of the police. They shouldn't be being harassed by the police. The police should be served more as a peace force, right? Like, let's look at the military. From what I understand, if the military has somebody who's out of line or somebody who does something wrong or maybe they kill somebody, they get discharged and they dishonorably discharged. But unfortunately in the police department, there's a lot of, and I'm sure you've heard this before, a lot of black people feel, and personally I feel as well, the police are the most dangerous gang in America. I will say that respectfully because they're able to get away with it, right? Your neighborhood gangs can't. And that's because the police have a system where it's kind of like a brotherhood where like, okay, if he does something, I can cover up for it, you know? or I'll cover up his back, just like the four, the other cops around 
the murder of um, a gentleman um, haven't been prosecuted in any way, you know, because there's always like that, that chain of command of helping each other out. So that's why I think like they need to have a system where, you know, we're holding each other accountable. And also the, um, the most important thing is to protect and serve and be a resource to the community and have that bond where it's like, okay, we know like these people are here to help us. If we have an issue, it's so we can lean on. Because right about now, any police interaction I have would make me uncomfortable. I would rather not have any interaction with them whatsoever because I feel like at any moment, I look at somebody the wrong way, I do something wrong. I, maybe he has a bad day. Maybe he wants to meet his quota or something. My tail lights out and then I'm in cuffs, then I'm shot, then I'm on the ground. Then I'm leave for dinner, like then I don't see my family again. So it's like you got people that would rather call their call their homies not nine one one. Like that's what we say, you know. So it's like an ideal police force would be one where it's like, okay, I have something wrong. It'd be like how the firemen work. The black community love firemen. You know why? Because firemen come in, they do their job, and they're not killing people. They just come in there and they save people. That's how the police, in my opinion, should model themselves to protect and serve. It's not their job to be judge, jury, and executioner. There's obviously checks and balances in place in our government to do that. And the police's job is to apprehend the suspect and then move them up in the chain of command into the court system and you know, move up the chain. So that's to me what it should look like. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think most people would probably agree with you that there is a problem of justice being decided on a whim rather than using the criminal justice system. And that's clearly a problem. And I, I think your point about the distinction between firemen and police is a, is a strong one at that. So kind of segueing off of that, Nick, since you're more involved with law enforcement and have a lot of family in law enforcement, and that's kind of been a career path for you that you're considering, when the police department does do something wrong, like Bio was saying, be both the judge, jury, and executioner, what is kind of the way that they can be reprimanded and or fired, seeing that that doesn't happen at all proportional to the amount of probably missteps that the police takes? Sure. Well, firstly, it really depends on uh, the individual situation that happens. Just because law enforcement is a job which obviously involves a, a fair amount of violence and a lot of confrontation, there's always this air of uncertainty in the legitimacy of allegations against officers. And so regardless of the severity or regardless of the uh, alleged incident, there's always an investigation into said officers. And I think that the results of that investigation should then kind of determine on what their reprimand should be if they're, of course, found guilty. Now, inherently for any officer who deliberately or negligently hurts somebody uh, outside of a necessity to, it, again, the circumstances of the case should be weighed. An officer who is experiencing an extreme amount of stress or an officer who is unable to physically restrain somebody who accidentally uses more force than necessary, there should be retraining for that officer and there should be a better now established line of, it should be included in their history of work with the department. And there should also be retraining that is now more likely to allow them to do their job better in the future. However, again, for blatantly you know, firstly, discriminatory for blatantly violent or for, you know, blatantly negligent acts, you know, much like the one we see uh, in the murder of George Floyd, again, that officer needs to be immediately relieved of duty and possibly face criminal charges. That's really what the uh, internal affairs department of most police uh, departments are responsible for is determining how negligent or how guilty was this officer and what should their repercussions be. So I think bolstering uh, internal affairs in most police departments could do a lot to solve some of this division between the police and the community. So to just kind of push back on that a little bit, though, it has come out that the officer in this case, in George Floyd's case specifically, had multiple police brutality claims, I think upwards of 10, 
against him, yet no real action came of that. So I think to an extent, a bolstering and, you know, tightening of internal affairs is maybe a step in the right direction. It didn't seem to prevent much in this case, or in fact, I would say a, a good portion of cases, maybe by, I don't want to speak for you, but I think a lot of people would say, you know, that doesn't go far enough and that doesn't really cause any actual change, right? As Bio was mentioning, you see sometimes that people will cover from one another, even within the department, and that kind of prevents any action. Like a retraining is probably helpful, but might not match the severity of the harm done to the individual from the officer. So if you kind of want to comment on that. Let me just get through firstly the uh, allegations against uh, Derek Chauvin. I wouldn't call him Officer Derek Chauvin because he's truly a criminal, uh, unfair to, you know, wear the badge of the law. However, I do think, and so, you know, let me make, make that blatantly clear that, you know, uh, George Floyd was uh, unlawfully murdered by any stretch of the word. It really is his criminal past. Whatever he was doing at the time is completely irrelevant. He was complying and he should not have been killed. It was an absolute misstep. Derek Chauvin is a criminal. However, I do think that his past has been largely misconstrued. And I don't mean to say that to defend uh, Chauvin himself, but rather sort of this concept that the police fail to review their records and that they basically just let this murderer walk around. There's a popular graphic that's going around that shows a black and white image of Chauvin who was kneeling on Floyd. And it talks about some of his records. One was that he uh, murdered a man named Wayne Rays. This is incorrect, as a matter of fact. He was one of six officers who opened fire on him after he stabbed somebody in 2006. Another one was that he shot Ira Luttrell. However, there's body cam footage of Luttrell going for Chauvin's gun. Another and probably one of the most famous is uh, that he shot um, Leroy Martinez, who is a uh, Native American. And again, on these graphics, they're kind of uh, perpetuating this fact that Chauvin had murdered this man and simply gotten away with it. But that's not true. Chauvin wasn't even the one who fired his weapon. And Martinez was actively fighting with the officers, as well as the 17 complaints that were filed against Chauvin. 16 of them were investigated and closed with no discipline. And one garnered a letter of reprimand. So again, I don't mean to say this to defend Chauvin, who is you know, obviously a scumbag and not fair to wear the badge, but I do think it is absolutely unfair to say that the, police the Minneapolis Police Department basically just let this murderer walk free, because that's not really true. There weren't direct signs in this case that Chauvin was this ticking time bomb who was just out to kill people. And so I think in terms of you know, establishing a line of conduct for officers, there should absolutely be mental evaluations and there should absolutely be reprimands for those who commit misconduct. And again, if that misconduct is violent, you know, if any one of these situations had been unjustified, Chauvin absolutely should have been fired and considered criminal charges for. But I do think it is, and again, this is you know, really as far as I'll go, and, and I wouldn't even say defending him because I'm not, I'm again, rather defending the Minneapolis Police Department in this case, there really was no line to suspect that uh, he was simply out to hurt people. Yeah, Bio, if you want to follow up on that. Yeah, I mean, based on the stuff that you said, I didn't know about, but I mean, at the end of the day, regardless of circumstances, the record is the record, and those things are facts. And like, I don't know how policing works necessarily, but I don't know if every police officer necessarily shoots at people during their line of work and their tenure. I don't know how that works. I can just go based on what you said and based on what he did. And in my opinion, law enforcement isn't a line of work where you can have a bad apple. Law enforcement isn't a profession where you can't have mistakes. You know, unfortunately you are a human and you know, you can't have certain infractions, but there are certain things that are unacceptable because ultimately you signed up for the job. Nobody made you do that. And there's a certain responsibility that comes with that. And in order to, to fulfill that job, you have to conduct yourself in a certain way. And we understand that, you know, sometimes the people, people being apprehended or doing certain things to edge them on or doing certain things. But I mean, you know, 
this is the line of work that was chosen, you know, and it comes with a lot and we respect that. But I mean, the things that he did was unacceptable, you know, given the fact that he knew George Floyd, he worked with him as a bouncer part-time, to me it's disrespectful to give him a third degree murder charge. Because in my opinion, you could definitely easily argue it's premeditated to some extent and you're not on somebody's neck for eight minutes and have no idea and call it manslaughter. It's not manslaughter. It wasn't like, oh, I accidentally like ran somebody over. No, it was it was a calculated thing. You can see the look in his eyes, you know? Something like that doesn't just happen. People walking down the street just don't have moments like that. See, I took forensic science this year and I learned a lot about serial killers. I learned a lot about the mindset of them. And the common denominator in all serial killers is three things. There's head trauma, bad, like a poor childhood, and then there's mental issues, right? And those, that's how you, you know, it's like something in their brain that changes and that's how you get people like that. So I'm not saying that police officers are serial killers, but what I'm saying is that there was something that was off there that was missing that led up to where we are now. And whether or not the police report show that, I think to an extent that, you know, it says something, you know, like having that, I don't know how many reports as a police officer, legitimate reports that you should have depending on how long you work, but 10 reports and 10, like, I don't know, citations or whatever, it sounds like a lot to me. It sounds like somebody that maybe needs to be suspended for a little bit, somebody that needs to be retrained, maybe transferred to a different city because they can't handle interactions with the people of Minneapolis, maybe. Because, you know, if a cop has a history of, just not having the greatest interactions with people in a certain city, maybe consider moving them somewhere else. I do want to move on to, I think, the most interesting part of this discussion, which is where do you move forward from here? And what I mean by that is police shootings of black men have been kind of like this interval occurrence, right? Whether it's Ferguson, whether it's the Watts riot, like you can go back and there's just plenty of lineages of kind of these outbursts here. But I think a lot of people, a lot of the debate, especially among people who are in agreement that there is a issue of racism in the criminal justice system, there's a lot of division among them as to what to do going forward. And I think just to like name some things, at least I've seen, which is that there are some people calling for kind of the at least abolition or full defundment of a lot of police departments and kind of the, you know, people who apply blanket statements to all law enforcement officers. Um, there's some people who would say that, you know, occasional protesting all the way up to rioting, looting, whatever you want to call it, is a necessary portion to have every few years to kind of bring up the issue. And then there's some people who said, no, none of that is really that important. I think we should just try to work within the system and change policy. So Bio, I'll go to you first. Going forward, is there a way that we can kind of decrease the amount of police brutality there is? Uh, and if so, what does that look like? As far as what we can do, it's important for us to mobilize and organize. I was watching Killer Mike's speech last night and he was talking about what they need to do in Atlanta. So I took some notes on that. We need to complete the census. We need to let people know where we live, where we are. We vote in local uh, elections and vote against the people we don't like. And, you know, it's important, like, the protests that we're seeing of people looting and trying to make a statement, I'm not going to justify the looting but I'm not necessarily against it because I know the corporations that are being hit can handle it. It's not going to hurt their pockets. It's just important that we don't burn down our own communities, our own homes and our own businesses, because in the past, white people have done the same thing. It's, it's a form of dehumanizing us. You had Black Wall Street and 
a white lady said a black man stepped on her toes or spit on her or something and they burned down the whole this whole thriving black wall street and community you have emmett till where he was lynched because a white woman said that he looked at her perversely or something like that and then she came out and later said that it wasn't true so what i mean to say is like the things that people are doing now is a human response it's not a black response and let's stop using the word black it's a we're a people that we're not a color or a thing we have to get away from the dehumanization that we went through years ago where we were viewed as monkeys and just not human objects we're people what we're doing or what people are doing is a human response no different than what white people did in response to certain things just like the tea tax people were mad that the british raised the tea tax so what did you what did they do they threw the stuff overboard they rioted they did all that stuff there's really no difference from that to now it's really the riots and stuff is a statement just to show like because what else can you do you know there's a system that's against us and part of the only reason that this stuff is really relevant still is because of the riots you see like if you go back to trayvon martin what happened to george zimmerman absolutely nothing okay he's still walking free and that's a problem so the protests and the looting is part of a way to keep this stuff relevant in the media but i guess i just want to say that it's important for us to definitely let our voices be heard especially because we're in a election year in the fall it's important for us to move and get someone who is can do better in office because they represent who we are to the world and they also um it's also caused a great divisiveness in the country so it's very important for us to vote and to elect local leadership and get the people out of office the district attorneys we don't like the mayors that we don't like and get the leadership that we want to see and also be the leadership we want to be to get in those positions to hopefully uh, make things better for our individual communities, all of our individual communities one at a time, and then hopefully, you know, builds up the chain to where we can see change on a, a greater scale. The thing is, when it comes to black issues, right, when you have, my friend was telling me this, when a woman is assaulted, right, what do we do? We turn to a woman to educate us and tell us what's going on and help us to understand, help us to understand her. We listen, we take what she's saying, and we're like, okay, this is what we need to do to do better. They don't want to hear a, a man telling people, telling a woman what they should do when something happens. They want to hear from her because she understands she's been through. It's her place to say, you listen more than you speak. Same with LGBTQ plus people, individuals, right? I, as a straight male, am not going to help try to educate them and tell them what should happen if it needs to happen. I'm going to listen to them and do what they say makes them feel comfortable. But when it comes to black issues, it almost seems that everyone has something to say. It's most important in times like this for you two gentlemen and everybody else that's not black, not people of color, not Asians, not Mexicans, not Indians. If you are not black, this is the time where you listen. It's not the time for everyone to have, you can have your opinion, you can obviously disagree with what's going on, but it's most important for people to hear and understand because why is it in other cases, it's, it's, it's the right thing to do to listen to the person who's been through that experience and is trying to tell you what's going on. We don't have this viewpoint for no reason. This viewpoint and these feelings are justified through hundreds of years of experience. So 
I don't want to speak on anybody else or any other race right now. It's a black issue and I want to highlight that. I don't want to water it down by lumping racial groups together. This is a black issue and I think it's important for every other race, not just quote unquote color, because white is a color, I will say. So it's important that, you know, people right now just listen to what we have to say. And I appreciate you guys for giving us the platform to do that. So thank you, Jay. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, again, completely agree with you. I just wanted to kind of clarify what you were saying, and I'm glad you did. I mean, yeah, and that's the reason that I kind of have this podcast in the first place, is to have people who are really passionate about certain issues. I mean, in your case, someone who's deeply connected to a certain issue, share your opinion, because otherwise, white people can just, you know, shy away from it. Trying to have a proper dialogue, I think, is the best way to kind of hear hear what you have to say. Otherwise, people can hide away from it. But Nick, I do want to turn to you now. Similar question, and you can respond to anything Bio said as well, sure. um, which is wh where do we go moving forward? Because as I said, Absolutely. all of us can kind of condemn this George Floyd incident alone. I don't think anyone, even people on the very far right, are saying that this officer should be charged. But systemically, how do we <laughs> kind of move forward in your opinion? Yeah, thank you. And before I begin, I'd just like to say, Bio, I absolutely agree with you that we really need to, as a country, we really need to do everything we can to repair the, or, you know, at least to try to repair the hundreds of years, because I don't think there's anything that could be said that could repair the hundreds of years of damage to the African American community and uh, other races. That's just, there's nothing that will ever really suffice in the same way, but I think we absolutely need to do everything we can, like you were saying, in terms of voting, keeping people educated, giving them opportunities through whether through affirmative action or through government programs that are going to try to at least help people who have been disenfranchised and been beaten down by the their socioeconomic situation to get them back to a you know quality of life that would be fitting for uh, for a human being. And I also agree that we should absolutely listen to black people who are connected to this issue and who know it pretty much better than anybody. So with that, I'd like to kind of talk about some of my steps for change and some of the w uh, ways that I see, you know, you and your lived experience kind of talked about the way that we see it through uh, the lens of an African-American. And I would kind of like to talk about it through at least the experience that I've been so connected to through law enforcement and the way that I think law enforcement can change and can benefit from some uh, programs that are already in place. And so I'd like to look at it through uh, two avenues, one on the side of police departments and one on the side of the government as a whole. And firstly, talking about police departments, there absolutely needs to be greater training and oversight for PDs, and especially those that are located in areas with high crime rates and where officers interact with criminals in the community um, more than other departments, such as those in rural areas. So one step, namely, could be those that are uh, simply providing a larger amount and a higher quality of training to patrol officers. The current police academy is six to eight months, depending on where you are. After that, you go through a two-year probation period. And then after that, officers are assigned to a division and they're assigned to a precinct and they go throughout their job and they qualify for their firearm uh, once a year, which they have to, you know, hit a certain, uh, excuse me, have to shoot a certain score in order to stay on the, uh, stay using their firearm on the force. And so I absolutely think there needs to be better oversight through this. There needs to be more training programs. You know, firstly, within the academy, there needs to be a, if not a longer academy, there needs to be a greater emphasis placed on de-escalation and on methods of uh, dealing with non-compliant suspects. There also needs to be more often within departments, there needs to be a greater emphasis on retraining and reevaluation after violent uses of force or after any uses of force. There needs to be a greater method in which we can train officers and give them the tools to protect the community better. And a lot of these are gonna, the ones I would deal with are considering those with non-compliant suspects. One of the things I noticed about the George Floyd case is that he was uh, extremely claustrophobic and he didn't wanna get into the police car after the officers arrested him. 
And so after that, that was shortly before Chauvin braced him on the ground and he eventually died. And so again, having a training program that could teach these officers and all officers how to deal with a situation like this, as opposed to simply jamming his knee into his neck, could have likely prevented this death and could have prevented other uses of force that are unreasonable or simply prevent a violent situation. So I think that if we consider that uh, these officers, and many of them namely, don't want to cause harm and want to protect the community, but simply might not have the tools to do so, we could see that there could be a, a large drop in many of these incidents and many of the more controversial incidents in which uh, lethal uh, or any violent use of force was unjustified. And so that is really going to come through the federal government. That's a way that I think that the federal government should be bolstering local state police departments in order to get them a better standard of training to protect citizens. There are proven solutions in police departments that have lessened the lethal force cases per year. This is according to the Use of Force Project, which some of these modifications to department policy are requiring warnings before shooting, They installing a use of force continuum that essentially means that there has to be certain qualifiers for firing a weapon. Some of these are uh, banning chokeholds, strangleholds, and requiring officers to use exhaust all other means, which is prominent in many departments. And so implementing some of these kind of legislation or uh, some department policy in these departments, especially the ones where there's a lot of uh, fighting between police and criminals, is going to absolutely decrease some of the violence we see and hopefully decrease some of these more controversial cases. They're not going to make any undue mistakes while they're in the field. And then secondly, I wanted to talk about how we also have to consider the socioeconomic motivations for the status quo. That's a thing that uh, you and I have both uh, spoken about a little bit. And really, the history of oppression and prejudice in our country cannot be solved with police training alone. If we were hypothetically to commission a force of entirely autonomous uh, officers, those who were uh, akin to RoboCop, we would almost certainly still see African-American communities disproportionately affected by crime and violence. And this is just because of the socioeconomic situation in the country. And this really needs to be remedied in and of itself in order for better relations between the police and the uh, minority communities to occur. And again, I think, like I was saying earlier, this can take place through affirmative action programs, more community engagement, progressive legislation like you were talking about, like ensuring that uh, my minority communities are fully involved in their rights of voting. And overall, just basically lessening the necessity of many uh, impoverished communities on crime so that the police don't have as great of a, a criminal inter- or a, you know, felony interaction with them that eventually leads to a lot of the disproportionate crime we're seeing. And so ultimately, that's really my position in the sense that, again, I'm, I'm really so firmly against any of these kind of radical solutions abolishing the police force. I'm, I'm really pretty disgusted against uh, burning down the precinct in Minneapolis because I, I think it really just kind of goes to show that these the, the public at least, or not the public at large, but those people who burned down, uh, those who burned down the precinct that the four officers are now uh, standing in and are basically speaking for an entire police force, many of which who people who have never, ever committed misconduct. It's also putting, like we were talking about how uh, firefighters are such an, uh, you know, a vital part of America. We're now putting firefighters at undue risk. And I don't, you know, overall on the concept of looting and violence, uh, let me first say that I, again, I don't negate violence as a a means to for a beaten down and oppressed people to survive. Uh, we really saw this in Japan uh, just last year, where there was uh, you know massive protests and the police were really trampling over citizens' rights, and many of those citizens resorted to violence in order to basically support their cause. And so I do think there are completely legitimate uses of which violence and violent revolution can be relevant in getting a you know disenfranchised community's rights back. But I don't think that this is the case here. 
because really from the entirety of my research, I have not seen one police officer who agrees with the way George Floyd was arrested and you know, subsequently murdered. And especially, you know, police chiefs across the country have been calling out his actions. And like Jared was saying, I really think even most uh, very far right wing people would not support or those who you know, support the police to death would really not support this use of force. And so I don't think there's uh, really a point to rioting and, and violent looting here because it really only exasperates the issue of violence. And of course, I want to mention the fact that a lot of the, uh, these protesters have been peaceful, and that's a vital part of American democracy. When a, people, when a community feels that it is not being represented, it absolutely must protest and use its First Amendment rights in order to make sure that its needs are met. But I don't think that, uh, again, the use of violence against police officers and uh, looting is just solving the issue. It's really uh, exasperating the violence and prolonging this divide between the police and the community. Again, regardless of, like you were talking about, many of these corporations probably can survive such looting. I just don't really see how that's productive. I don't really see how that's going to accomplish this goal of, of civil rights. This is you know, a constantly changing society, but it's one with a system of laws. You know, we are a democracy and we are a nation in which that when the people, specifically a oppressed people, feels that they have been mistreated, that they do have the tools and the means and the implements in order to improve their situation. And I don't think that, you know, for, a, again, a group of people in my, namely minority communities, although, of course, the cause of civil rights extends to all races, namely minority communities who feel that violence in this case should be the answer, I just don't, I feel that it's almost sort of hypocritical a community that has experienced so much violence and that who has experienced so much oppression that I just don't see the cause for you know harming first responders as being efficient in in attempting to further that cause. I'll give you a, a response to that and then we'll kind of wrap up from there. Okay yeah the reason why black people are looting and doing these things is because it's hard for for you to understand the helplessness you see, a couple of weeks ago, you have a whole bunch of white people storming the state capitol with AR-15s. When would that ever happen with people who were black, where everyone walked away with their life? No such foolishness would ever happen, exists in this country. It's instances like that where we say, if we did the same thing, what would have happened? You know, that's why that's part of why, see, you say that there are other ways for us to let ourselves be heard. We've been doing that. We've been trying that. You see, this country isn't set up for us to win. You're educated. You know that. You know how it started. You know the origins we got into that at the beginning. How can we play a game if the game isn't fair? Now, I'm not saying that I'm going to go out and start stealing and stuff. But what I'm saying is, you get to a point to where there's no other option. Nick, if you want to add one last word and then we'll uh, conclude. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, and I definitely don't intend to, you know, see the situation from, from your lens. I, you know, I absolutely hear what you're saying. And, uh, you know, I hear that, you know, I can definitely understand the, the passion you have for this issue. And, and I've heard it from uh, my other black friends as well, in the sense that it's, it's just been such a long history. And I understand that for many people, the way they feel that this is sort of the final answer. And I do feel it's one, one place you might have to just sort of agree to disagree. I mean, again, just sort of where at least and I come from and in my life experience, you know, I've always sort of prioritized handling the problem with, with peace as far as can, you know, up until there really is a necessity for violence. And I, again, personally, just, just where I'm from and, and doing my very best to recognize my privilege, I don't know if I see that here just because of the fact that there is still a lot of legislation to be done. The gears of the justice system are turning on Chauvin. He's been arrested. Uh, 
the other officers are going to be charged. And so I feel that before, again, before we really commit to this kind of violent uprising that people want, I would like to see a little bit more of, you know, proper legislation and furthermore, just civility before we move into that way. Because I feel more than anything else, I do feel like America has to, it's so beneficial for America to be unified from this process more than anything. And I see the looting and the rioting as dividing us rather. But again, I do think that our, our life experience is sort of, uh, sort of pull us in different directions on that one. And so I definitely understand uh, where your opinion lies and I hope you understand where mine, come from, mine comes from as well. Yeah, anyway, uh, with that note, I can't say again how grateful I am to have both of you here. I think it's uh, important to bring kind of dialogue to people. As Nick, you were just saying, to understand why people are pulled in the ideological directions they are. And I have a feeling that this conversation will end up being replayed a few years down the road, unfortunate as that might sound. So until until some stuff gets changed, I have a bad feeling. But I'm glad that we could have this and I'm, I'm glad that we can continue to have good dialogue. Nick, bio, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Instagram at Contested Politics and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. I'd like to extend a big thank you to Nick Catalano and Bio Collins for coming onto the show. Nick has some really good content that I think can appeal to some people who might feel that social media is an echo chamber otherwise. And Bio's podcast, The Politically Incorrect Podcast, is fantastic. So please check that out. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to the producer and editor of Contested, Adam Hussein, who does so much work behind the scenes, especially in these past two episodes, as they involved two separate guests. So, Adam, thank you. Until next time, thank you for helping us understand politics together.